1: I'm Jason Kander and this is majority 54 we are so excited to come back for the second season of our show here in crooked media so excited in fact that we're releasing our first episode two weeks early I think you'll understand why but before we go any further Please consider subscribing to make sure that you don't miss a single episode this season. If you're new to Majority 54, let me tell you who the heck I am. I'm the president of Let America Vote, an organization dedicated to making sure that every American gets to vote by creating political consequences for any politician who wants to diminish the most basic American right. I'm an Army vet. I served in Afghanistan. I was the first millennial ever elected to statewide office. Used to be the Secretary of State of Missouri. I live in my hometown, Kansas City, with my wife, Diana, and my son, True. Majority 54 is named for the 54% of Americans that did not vote for President Trump. And I created this show to help that 54% talk to their family members, their friends, and their acquaintances who did vote for Donald Trump. This show is about working to end this divide both politically and culturally by arming you with the tools to have these conversations rather than just shouting at each other. Don't get me wrong, I understand the shouting. It's my hope, though, that the topics we tackle during the next season will help you connect with those friends, family, and coworkers on a new level. The reason that it's so important to me that you engage all of these important people in your life on these divisive issues is that I believe that each one of us has a platform we can use to make a difference and change opinions. With that in mind, we're about to talk to a man with a really large platform. A platform so big that it feels ridiculous to even bother trying to introduce him. In fact, we're wasting time talking about talking about him. We should just dive in. Folks, without further ado... Here's my conversation with Lin Manuel Miranda. So, thanks for doing this. You obviously have um, a ridiculous amount of spare time, so this is not at all an inconvenience. Uh, (laughs) No, not at all. It's a pleasure. Yeah, so I appreciate it. You know, where I wanted to start actually, that's a little far afield. Is you know, you have obviously you've created uh, you know, onstage dramas and and musicals that are political in nature, and you've made politics entertaining. So my question is not about that because it's not an interview about that work. My question is, how do those of us who are politicians, in your view, how should we make politics more entertaining so people want to pay attention?
2: That's a fantastic question. I don't know that I have the answers. I can tell you how I went about writing Hamilton, which I didn't think about as an overtly political piece, except my one thesis, which is these are the origin stories of two party system and and sort of all the fights we keep having um and i think they're just our family fights the way you know there's fights that happen over and over again within a family dynamics the same is true of our of our country um and so i really tried to well it, you're threading a weird needle right mm-hmm. like i'm trying to like make sure i'm articulating thomas jefferson's viewpoint and alexander hamilton's viewpoint but i'm also looking at it through the filter of how is this the same fight we're still having? So if we're talking about consolidating debt, that's really a fight of when are we, in that case, 13 states and when are we one country? Uh, and, you know, Jefferson's view was like, hey, we paid our debts. Like, why on earth should we pay yours? Um, and and that we have we still have variations of that argument over and over and over again. The other sort of cabinet rap battle, Jefferson and, and Hamilton fight that I chose to focus on, they fought about a million things. But what I chose to focus on in the show was also about foreign intervention. Um, in their case, the French Revolution. The French gave us money and ships. They helped us uh, uh, declare independence from the British. Now they're going through their own uh, tumult. Um what do we owe them are we or do we sort of look inward and build our own and we will have that fight as long as we are a country on this planet um and so um i i think that you know so as a result it's political because the the same fights will will sort of always keep happening um but i also think that i got sucked into hamilton's story because it was just a deeply compelling story and i think the 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 politicians who grab us are the ones who make their personal stories, um, relatable and, and accessible to us. Um, you know, I think of, I think of, uh, former president Obama, you know, mom born in Kansas, dad, born in Kenya, and in no other country is my story even possible. Um, and the hope that gives us, um, and the, you know, I think, you know, the thing that I sort of enjoy about both Hamilton and Obama like, they're both good writers. <laughs> uh, you yeah. know what I mean? And so, you know, I think those, those, those people who can kind of, Translate whether it's policy or their personal story or their values into stories. I think that's always going to suck us in. I think that's why theater will live longer than any other art form. When the robots take over and <laughs> we're back in you know back in caves telling each other stories in the dark, like theater, <laughs> theater still lives. This took a dark turn. Right? <laughs> it did. It did. <laughs> no. I think I just saw that video of the robot dog opening a door. I'm in a dark place with it.
1: <laughs> well, uh, no, I think the storytelling part is 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 the important part, right? Like. After the election, everybody was talking about fake news, right? That right. was the big topic, is what do we do about this? And and I think the assumption was that it, it became viral because it was fake. And I think you would argue, and I would agree, that... Well, no, oftentimes things become viral because they're compelling and you can tell the truth in a way that is compelling. Yeah.
2: And, they can, and, and, and they become facts just because they're plausible. I'm thinking about urban legends I remember hearing as a kid growing up. I remember hearing that Dustin Diamond, the kid who played Screech on Saved by the Bell was Mike D from the Beastie Boys' brother. I remember that. Not true at all, but they both have the last name Diamond. It could be true. Mm-hmm. You know, Marilyn Manson could be the kid from the Wonder Years. I can kind of <laughs> see it. And because we have our own, internal biases. We, we, we tend to believe what is plausible to us. And, and that way sort of fake news travels like wildfire. And then we never, we never go beyond the headline that just sort of falls in our brain with the tonnage of information that, that sort of we ingest now, thanks to social media. It's sort of, you know, you know, it's not just picking up your daily paper anymore. It's a constant feed. And so uh, we don't read the correction. (laughs) We don't read the retraction. We just get that bit. Oh, I thought I heard that Screech was his brother. (laughs) On the internet. (laughs) On the internet. So it must be true. Yeah.
1: Um, Okay. So one thing we should talk about uh, a little bit, I guess, is the link between us, which is my great uncle. Yes. Um, I joked when, when you came in that I, I feel like we're cousins because because uh, <laughs> he plays such a big role in both of our lives, and yet we've never met until just now.
2: It's true, and and when you know when I see you doing something incredible, I I have this weird familial pride I'm like, hey, that's Candor's boy. <laughs> it's,
1: it's funny. That's how I feel about your little musical. Yeah. <laughs> So good luck with that. It seems like it's going to yeah, be a so big far, thing. So far so good. Yeah. Good. <laughs> um, no, I think I think you got pluck and things may happen for you. Oh, yes, i No. Um no, so the the story of when I I didn't even know that John and you knew each other and so it's kind of a funny story of how I found out. So it was after Hamilton came out and I already had become huge and I'm in Kansas City but still people were saying to me like you should, you know, like they were doing all over the country, you should go see this. And by the way, it is the only non kander and Ebb musical that I've ever actually seen.
2: Oh, we got to fix that.
1: Yeah, well, probably so, right? I mean,
2: you, you have a great diet if
1: it's just Kander and Ebb musicals, but. Well, but the problem is, is everyone assumes that I know all sorts of stuff about Broadway and have seen everything. <laughs> right. And I'm like, anytime I've been in New yeah, York. it's your
2: birthright. It's your last name's birthright.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, also, I can't like even hum to a beat, which is kind of <laughs> humiliating when people expect that you could. But anyway, so uh to go back, I I, I didn't know that y'all knew each other and John, being like the world's most modest human, as you know. It's true. Which is amazing that he and I are so directly related. But anyway, so he uh he's telling a story about how he got a Kindle because he had a Kindle and I was I was I was like John, wow, that's pretty that's pretty high tech. And he said, well a friend of mine was writing this musical, and it was about a historical figure, and he would come to these, I think, breakfasts or lunches. Yeah, we'd go have lunch. And he said he would always have a bag of books. And, and then one day he showed up, it was books about the guy he's writing about, and one day he showed up, and he didn't have any books. And I was like, oh, no, are you not doing this anymore? And he said, I got a Kindle. And he goes, so that's how I got a Kindle. And I'm like, well, who was the musical about? And he says, Alexander Hamilton. And I'm like, is your friend Lin-Manuel Miranda?
2: And he's like, yeah, you've heard of him? <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I knew. Yeah, well, he is the greatest. Well, listen, you know, one of the weirdest things about if you're lucky enough to get to work off-Broadway or off-off-Broadway or near Broadways, you meet your heroes quickly because we all work within the same amount of real estate. And John was one of the first composers to come see In the Heights off-Broadway. Um, and he uh, offered to take me to lunch, and I absolutely said yes. And And I'll sort of never forget it. We sort of, we sat down to eat, and one of the first things he said was, do you ever feel like they'll find out you're a fraud? And I was like, (laughs) dude, you wrote New York, New York. Like, what? I don't even know what to say to that. But it was also the most reassuring thing he could have said because he is, you know, He had a new piece premiere last week. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, he's just, he is, he is sort of, he was sort of my first composer friend and he has really um, been a career role model in how to just keep working and keep plugging away. And okay, that was successful. That was not so successful. Like you just keep making sort of the next thing. And um, I'll never forget once uh, I stayed upstate uh, at his house and he was working on Scottsboro Boys at the time. And he was like, well, I'm going to have to go off and write in the morning for a bit, but I'll see you sort of after breakfast. And he went off to his little hut and he came out with his hands up and said, my conscience is clear, (laughs) which meant he had written just enough to not feel guilty for not writing for the day. And that has been sort of my, my, my go-to when I get just enough writing done. My conscience is clear.
1: He swears that he's like the world's laziest person, which I find hilarious.
2: It's an He's had a new piece premiere like every year the past three years, and it's um. And he's for those listening who don't know, he's in his nineties. He's in his nineties, and he hasn't missed a step, and he's quicker. He's quicker than everybody, and he's you know. And and by the way, his last Broadway show, The Visit, was my favorite of his Candor Neb shows, and and it was just the economy of it. I mean, it'll never it will never have hit the status of cabaret because that was sort of meeting a moment, but it was. I, I thought it was sort of this distillation of everything they wrote about of like making you hum and cry while they step on your neck, um, yeah. which was sort of the thing that Kendra and was specialized in. Yeah.
1: Super dark, but stuck in your head.
2: Super dark, but like <laughs> with a smile on their face, yeah. you know, if I go, I'm going like Elsie. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Okay, well, I'm gonna switch gears a little. So we're here to talk about the campaign that you're running to raise money for causes that you care about. Yes. Uh, now you used to auction off Hamilton props and events that were raking in tens of thousands of dollars for charity, but you've moved to this new platform. Uh, it's called Prizio mm-hmm. and it runs things differently. So talk a little bit about what spurred that change, if you would.
2: Well, I, I mean, it, the the same thing that sort of animates a lot of what we do. You know the The fact is Hamilton's a tough ticket to get. And as a result, uh, tickets get expensive. And so, you know, my response to that when I was in the show was to do these free shows outside on sidewalk. We did this thing called Ham for Ham. And I felt similarly, I I saw that people were sort of snagging tickets and doing auctions to the highest bidder for good causes. And and that's all well and good, but I also wanted to democratize that. Like you should be able to win – those tickets whether you have 5 bucks or you have 5000 bucks. And so with Prizio what's great is you know, you you basically everyone has an equal chance to win. It is a it is a raffle. It is a sweepstakes. Um, if you buy a certain amount of raffles, you can get some swag. We always have sort of themed uh, t-shirts and hats that are only for that campaign. So there's sort of these limited edition things. But the big carrot we dangle is, and and the one we're doing for DC is, you're my date. Um, you're my date to go see Hamilton in DC with this amazing cast. Um, you're going to uh, meet the entire company. Um, and we also have this super secret DC day planned. I mean, we are, um, we're, in, we're in the spot that became the capital in act two of our show. So we, uh, we ha- were in the unique uh, position to sort of, uh, get to see some of that. And, and we have some really amazing surprises in store and I'll be, I'll be by your side for it. So, uh, it's, it's a great prize.
1: You should buy a lot of tickets. Is it tickets? Am I even saying
2: it right? Yeah. Okay. Just, uh, yeah, you should buy a it. lot of entries. And, and you know, yes. we've been lucky in that we haven't really had anyone Veruca salt any of these <laughs> contests. Like, there's been no one who's bought out a factory and bought all the tickets so they can win. Like, most of our winners have been $20 entries, $10 entries, I think 40 bucks. Um, So, it's um, – it, everyone really does have an equal chance of winning. The benefits of doing the raffle system is, one – we're also making people aware of organizations they necessarily didn't necessarily know. So with this, going to D.C., we really wanted to sort of focus on vo- voter mobilization um, and uh, voting rights. And so I immediately thought of your organization. Much appreciated. Um, you know, because as I told you before we we got on mics, you know, most of what I've learned, like the craziest stories about voter suppression, I've learned from your Twitter feed and articles you've shared and, and experiences you've shared. And so
1: I'm going to take that responsibility very seriously going forward. (laughs)
2: Yes, good. (laughs) Um, And so, um, you know, I I just, I wanted to, to, to support your work uh, through this, but also, um, you know, it's, it's been great through sort of all of our campaigns. So we opened in London uh, last winter and because it was our first sort of you know, non-US uh, premiere, we thought of like, what's a global issue? And we, my, climate science is very uh, dear to my wife's heart. She's a scientist by training. And so we partnered with NRDC, which is a pretty famous sort of environmental mm-hmm. rights group. But we also partnered with the 1010 Climate Science Action Group, which is a smaller group based in London that really works in reforestation and uh, which is such a simple thing that does so much good. And so I think a lot of people learned about that organization um, as a result. So it sort of has lots of benefits you know, we've got the big grand prize, but we also you're hearing about organizations. And then if you don't have money to spend, you can volunteer with with Jason's group. There's there's no shortage of ways to do good. And so um I'm I'm really proud of these prize years when we get a chance to do them.
1: Yeah, I obviously we deeply appreciate it. Um and, and this is the first time that you've picked nonprofits that I think you could be characterized as more explicitly political. Uh I I suppose. And and so we should I mean, obviously, I'd love to keep all the emphasis on let America vote, but we should mention some of the others. Absolutely. Uh, so it's Black Pack, Center for Popular Democracy, and Latino Victory Fund, uh, and it sounds like to you, you feel like sort of voter mobilization is the thread that that flows through all of those.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that I think we are healthiest as a democracy when we all and as much of us get a say as possible, um, which is why I think your work is so important. You know, I think that if If we're playing fair, it's let the best ideas win, let the best candidate win, let the best let the values the voters agree with win. And if you're not playing fair, you're playing with voter IDs, you're playing with redrawing districts so that they look like puzzle pieces, Um, you know, and I don't I don't I don't like playing with. When I'm playing a board game, I like playing with kids who change the rules so they can yeah. win. <laughs> do you know what yeah. I mean? Oh, rooks don't do that. They can jump pieces. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's so much uh, of what happens. And I think that, um, you know, I think that, you know, in, in mobilizing these groups and getting more um, of, of the populace out to vote, we we have a healthier democracy.
1: Yeah. The point I always make, I guess, is that I like being on the side of the argument that knows that when— that we want more people in the jury box as opposed to wanting to limit it because we actually have faith in our argument. Correct. Yeah, I, Yeah. agreed. One thing I've I've learned from my own experience getting around the country and talking to people about why they're active and what they care about is that politics is a lot more introspective than people realize. Like, instead of it being uh, about, you know, reciting stuff in the New York Times that you read or or talking points, it's about looking inside yourself, figuring out why you believe what you believe, and then sort of taking people on that journey. So with everybody who comes on, I, I asked some version of, what do you think happened in your life that made you decide that, you know, engagement politically was always going to be a part of it?
2: Well, engagement politically for me was sort of a a, a birthright. <laughs> um, my, my dad was active in sort of community politics. And my, my parents met at a protest. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that was like their first date was, was that at some protest uh, in the seventies. So that was always sort of a thing. Activism um, was, was a part of their courtship. Um, but my dad was involved in democratic politics growing up. And the way most kids have a paper route, I was collecting signatures for democratic candidates uh, in, in buildings. Uh, I was handing out leaflets. So um, my, my dad has pictures of me at my 18th birthday party where I blew out the candles and then I was signing my, my like voter sure. ID form and, and, and registering to vote, uh, in the same moment. That's great. Um, my wish was for a car, but what I got was uh, <laughs> this voter card. Um, so it's, it, I just don't remember a time when it wasn't, um, in my life. And, and what's interesting is I think, I think that sneaks into my work in kind of really interesting ways. Uh, you know, the I, I think the the it the politics inherent in Hamilton, there's there's healthy doses of cynicism with that political process, along with um, you know, hope. And and I think I sort of I come by the cynicism honestly, because I've, you know, I've just been around political campaigns, uh, my entire life. Um, but I also um, you know, we we were sort of my parents always were working really hard and and in addition to their day jobs they were always sort of working to support candidates they believed in um, and so that's just that's just always been uh, my reality
1: What's interesting about it to me is that you know now now you're famous you've always been a person who cared about this stuff and was and was really an activist from yeah. birth but now a lot of people may or people may put you in the category of like, uh, you know, an artist who's become a celebrity who uses that platform politically. And so, you know, Fox News could put you in the shut up and sing category, right? <laughs> yeah.
2: So, Oh, I would love to shut up and sing. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great if I could just do yeah, that? Like,
1: <laughs> like if everything in the world was going fine and you're just like, I'm just going to do this now. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Well,
2: for me, the the is sort of a, is exactly an end run around that of like, no, no, no. The the raffle is to see me shut up and sing, right? To mm-hmm. or to see our cast shut up and sing. Um, and and yet we get to sort of raise uh money for 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 causes I believe in. And that's um that's been one of the you know, the benefits of um the success of the show. You know, I always sort of tell the story. I won the MacArthur Genius grant the week after we finished paying my wife's student loans off. <laughs> so it was like Oh, well, I could have used you last week, guys. (laughs) Um, But you have this gift and you have this vote of confidence um, from sort of the successes. So what do you do with that? And and our answer has always sort of been to pay it forward to the things we believe in.
1: Well, and I've always thought that the shut up and sing thing is BS because, like, I'm always telling everybody to use their platform. And, you know, some people have a bigger platform than others. Um, So, like, I'm curious whether you have conversations with other folks who are very well-known artists, who are more reticent to use that platform? And and maybe you don't, but if you do, I'm, I'm, what advice do you give them?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I, 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 I come by the, my opinion is that if you're an artist, your responsibility is first and foremost to your art um, in whatever way that manifests. If you want to paint trees and that's your thing, paint trees. You were under, and if you get super famous and rich for painting trees, like, you can just go paint trees. Like, that's fine. Um, I think that, um, you know, I think it's very, politics is personal. Just like you said, like it's the way in which we choose to engage with the world, um, is, is, is highly individual. And I, you know, I, I can speak sort of from my own life. Like I noticed that, you know, when, Twitter was getting sort of increasingly toxic. And I just felt like, why am I on here? Um, I, my Twitter feed started getting like more hopeful. Like I just started saying good morning and good night. Yeah, noticed and, that. You,
1: you actually say good night to everybody. Yeah. Like every I mean, night.
2: for me, it was, it was selfish at first. It was sort of my way of clocking office hours with myself of being like, I will say good morning. And that's when I'm on Twitter, I will say good night. And then I'm on Twitter. It doesn't mean I'm going to bed. It just means that like, I'm done with Twitter for the day. Um, Because for someone like me, who is a theater person, you know, an audience in my pocket is the worst thing you could give (laughs) me. I would just be on there all the time if I didn't set (laughs) those sort of benchmarks uh, for myself. But to get back to your question, um, I think that the, um, you know, I think the politics in my work is just sort of inherent to those characters and what they're going through within the Heights. All those characters are facing gentrification and they all deal with it in different ways. Some say this is what's happening and they sell their business and move on. Some choose to stay and fight. Like it's not some simple answer or some polemic I'm trying to deliver. I'm just trying to grapple with, you know, the, the politics as it is personal, um, And, and I think the same is true of, of Hamilton because I have to articulate Jefferson's viewpoint as eloquently as I, as I, Mm uh, articulate Hamilton's viewpoint. Um, but in terms of how we enter the world, so as a result, because I, you know, I try to keep a very positive Twitter, you know, you can see the news on a lot of people's Twitter feeds mm-hmm. and you can see outrage on a lot of people's Twitter feeds. And I really I, I I live in the same world as everyone else, but I try to be an oasis for folks. So the few times when I haven't been, it makes news because it's, um, you know, I, I sent three negative tweets about President Trump and they are the most retweeted things I've ever written um, because that's not how I like to spend my day or how I, what I like to put into the world. Um, and so, um, it's, it's really interesting because it's, uh, it's, it's, I I have friends who are artists who are on there 24 hours a day, sort of with issue after issue. And I, I, I genuinely, I generally try to just put my shoulder into things I believe will, will help. Um, and, and try to get my facts straight before I talk about it but that's just me like like everyone's different and and everyone's right (laughs) it's it's interesting that
1: you say it's an audience it feels like it's an audience in your pocket and you also say that you want to provide something that's a little bit of an escape from the toxicity for everybody because you basically just describe exactly the way john describes the theater yeah is he just says like what he loves about it is it's this thing off to itself that he gets to exist in and it's an escape both working in it and sitting
2: in the audience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think that's, it's one of the last places you can really escape where we really ask you to still put your phones away. Like concerts are done. Mm-hmm. Everyone pulls their phones out <laughs> yeah. and I don't know, you're never going to go back yeah. and watch that footage of that concert, yeah. but everyone pulls their <laughs> phones out at a concert. Um, but theater is one of the last places where we ask you to just sort of plug in and we're all going to tell this story together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think um, w- with social media, I I, I don't try to, I don't know that the word escape is, but just a breath, just a breath of like, Hey, we're here. Take a breath and then move on with your day. Yeah. Like be it's outraged like, about the things that outrage you, but like, Well, you're like trying to give people a little safe spot. Yeah. Just a, just a second. Yeah. yeah just I a think, little good morning, a little good night, a little manners. Yeah. And, and, and on we go.
1: I think that's great. So I often uh, tell folks that no matter the size of their platform, they have an opportunity to make a difference. So I'm curious what advice you would give to somebody who doesn't have a big platform, somebody who maybe has 500 Twitter followers and has never really been active before.
2: I think um, there's, I think there's no such thing as a small voice anymore. I think, you know, I have seen, I have seen um, things go wide and viral from people with 21 followers because they said it just the right way. You know, the 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 right sentiment said the right way kind of can catch fire Uh in in where we're living now, and, and and I think that's really exciting. I think the um, we really have reached this place where you know your voice rings out, and and it also continues to to carry weight. Um, and I think I always think sort of you know I, I think of people who just like write these incredible threads, uh, and and those threads go viral because they're personal stories coming from a personal place. Um, I'll give you a, a recent example from my life. I did a talk with my mom about Planned Parenthood. My mom is on the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. It's an organization that's been dear to her heart. And she asked me to do this. And I said, I'll do it, but I don't want to just like talk about the good things Planned Parenthood does, which are manifold. Um, I want to talk about your story. Um, And so we took 20 minutes on Facebook Live, and I asked her all the questions I always kind of wanted to Mm. ask her um, about her life before my sister and I were born. My mom is a cancer survivor. My mom got diagnosed with thyroid cancer at 19. Mm. um, And she um, got pregnant at 21. She she survived it in the seventies, which is amazing. And then she, it it sort of made her really focus on her life choices because she thought she had a death sentence and she, um, told the story about sort of getting through that radiation treatment, which was very experimental at the time and, and really wanting to be a mother while she was still alive. And, um, and she got pregnant at 21. Um, and it was, uh, my dad was not in the picture yet and it was the same year Roe V. Wade passed. Hmm. And they said to her, like, you, you have a choice now for like the first time you have a choice. Like it passed in January, 73. My mom found out she was pregnant in March of 73 and she's, and her choice was to, to have my sister. And that's such a specific story. And Planned Parenthood was instrumental in her story. Like both when she got sick and giving her her health options in, in getting treatment. And also uh, when she was, um, going to be a mom. And so, um, it's such a personal part of her story and that's unassailable. You know, if we had just talked about Planned Parenthood, everyone in the comments would have gone to their default opinion on Planned Parenthood, whatever side you, you come in on. But instead our feed was people, cause she also told stories about like, sort of how, when she was in high school, her valedictorian just like got pregnant and disappeared. They took her out of the yearbook and it was like, she never existed. (laughs) You know, there was such silence and stigma around these issues uh, when she was growing up. And so, you know, the the feed on that were more personal stories and more, um, sort of empathy and, and, and real engagement with the stories. Even if people didn't agree, um, with, with the mission of Planned Parenthood, they came at it from a personal angle, as opposed to here's my default political position. And so I think, you know, whether you have 12 followers or 5 million followers, your personal story carries more weight, um, because it's, it's how you come by, uh, the values that, that you choose to reflect and advocate for.
0: All right, Jason, here we go. It's ads time. I'm ready. I feel like we should stretch or something. It's been a while since we've done this. It's a little rust, a little rust involved.
1: Diana is actually stretching right
0: now. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure to do a good job. So we are very, very grateful to our first and only advertiser for this episode because we started early to get Lynn manuel on in time for the Prizio campaign. And one advertiser stepped up and uh, helped us put this podcast on so that you guys can hear it. And so we're super grateful, extra grateful to ZipRecruiter, so
1: much so that I think they should get the special treatment. ZipRecruiter.
0: Oh yeah, they learn what you're looking for, identify people with the right experience, and invite them to apply to your job. In fact, eighty percent of employers who post a job on
1: ZipRecruiter
0: <laughs> get quality. I don't know if it's working the same for me. But I
1: feel like this is um, this gimmick may be overdone now. Yeah, I'm,
0: I don't I'm, know, I'm, but that doesn't negate the fact that we are so grateful to. ZipRecruiter.
1: Yeah, that was Is good. that a good
0: one? Mm-hmm. They get quality candidates through the site in just one day. The right candidates are out there, and ZipRecruiter is how you find them.
1: Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Surely there is nowhere else in the podcasting universe where you can get this deal. Possibly you can, but we'll say no. I not.
0: haven't heard of any other place. I'm pretty sure it's yeah. just Majority 54. It
1: must be. that. I don't know. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash 5-4. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash 5-4. One
0: more time.
1: ZipRecruiter.com slash
0: 5-4. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.
1: Hey, it's Jason here. If you listen to season one, you know that in segment two, we end each episode by running through a quick list of the arguments that our listeners might hear from, say, right-laying family members or misinformed friends or from the political pundit propaganda machine itself. These ideas and viewpoints are often frustrating or, shall we say, in the kindest possible terms, not great. But one of the goals of Majority 54 is to give tools to engage with the other side. So I'm going to rattle off a few opposition talking points and Lynn and I are each going to share constructive responses to less than constructive statements. Today we're talking Puerto Rico, specifically the way that the far right has responded to the natural disaster, to a president being incapable and unwilling to be the leader that we needed. So let's get back to my conversation with Lynn and we'll address these right wing talking points.
0: This morning, President Trump is taking to Twitter suggesting Puerto Rico should shoulder more responsibility for its recovery from Hurricane Maria. He shared his feelings in three separate tweets. His first mentioned a conservative leaning journalist by name. Puerto Rico survived the hurricanes. Now a financial crisis looms largely of their own making, says Cheryl Atkinson. A total lack of accountability, say the governor. Quoting here, electric and all infrastructure was disaster before hurricanes. Congress to decide how much to spend. And the last tweet here, we cannot keep FEMA, the military, and the first responders who have been amazing under the most difficult circumstances in Puerto Rico forever.
1: So basically all this comes down to the president will say things like, you know, Puerto Rico's always been a disaster. And the implication or the explicit question is why should the rest of America have to pay for it? So, how, yeah. how do you respond when people say that? Well,
2: I mean, you could unpack that that it's always been a disaster. I mean, <laughs> Donald Trump has had properties that closed in Puerto Rico because <laughs> they didn't go well. Um, you know, the frankly, um, Puerto Rico has – the, the debt crisis is the result of so many decades of mismanagement that have nothing to do with the actual people who live on the island. It has to do with – Tax shelters and double tax relief. I mean, John Oliver did a really sort of great segment on it, but um, especially in the wake of Hurricane Maria, the notion that a Puerto Rican citizen who is just maybe getting electricity back has the money – they don't have it. I mean, I think the conversation really needs to shift from uh, debt restructuring to debt forgiveness, because this is um, this is a a case where the last thing that is being squeezed are pensions and civil services and schools and hospitals. And they don't have the money like and this is the result of years of mismanagement uh, from all administrations of all stripes. Um, but to answer the question, um, Puerto Ricans are American citizens, right? We are, uh, and, and, you know, a, when a city, uh, goes bankrupt, um, they're allowed to declare bankruptcy. Um, when, uh, when a portion of the mainland, um, is hit with a hurricane, it's anything we can do to help. Um, so the fact that, uh, Donald Trump sees Puerto Rico as other really says more about him than it says about us. Um, I, I have to tell you one of the things that has been so amazing in the wake of Hurricane Maria is I've really been humbled by how many Americans do get it. We've raised $35 million with the Hispanic Federation for both short-term and long-term recovery for the island. And I've seen more broken piggy banks. I have seen more lemonade stands. I have seen more employers matching employee funds from corporations as big as Disney to, you know, car you know, car dealerships. Um, you know, the American people get it. Um, it's 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 this administration that doesn't that somehow sees Puerto Rico as other.
1: Well, and I think a really important point to pull out of that is this, and on a lot of other issues. Sometimes when you hear people talk about it, they'll invoke like the royal we, and they'll say, "Why are we?" Which is which is a, a good instinct, right? Because we as Americans, why are we not doing more for these fellow Americans? But sometimes it is helpful to to set back and remember. That it is President Trump and his administration, and that doesn't, that doesn't reflect, like, how the rest of the country feels. Like, we don't have to feel shame upon all of us. We can do things individually. Yeah. Yeah. So we know what a disaster the response has been in Puerto Rico. But, uh, you know, President Trump has given himself a 10 out of 10 rating on his handling of Puerto Rico. It's clear that Donald Trump has made up his mind about the success of his administration's relief efforts in Puerto Rico. During a self-congratulatory event shortly after landing, the president praised the military, local officials and members of his cabinet for the emergency response and suggested that the crisis in Puerto Rico wasn't as bad as the aftermath of other hurricane disasters. If you look at a real catastrophe like Katrina and you look at the tremendous... Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that died. And you look at what happened here with really a
0: storm that was just totally overpowering. Nobody's ever seen anything like this. Between one and ten, how would you grade the White House response so far? I'd say it was a ten. Uh,
1: my question, Lynn, is do you think any points should be deducted from this and why?
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, wouldn't it be remarkable if the president showed humility for a nanosecond of his day. I mean, I would be more stunned and surprised if he said, oh, it's a six um, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> than the 10 out of 10. Obviously everything he says is in gold letters in his mind and he is he's choosing his own version of reality. I think he heard the statistic 16 dead at the outset of this uh, uh crisis um, and stuck with it and decided not to let any new facts in um, because it flies in the face of reality. We saw how many hospitals were were without power. We saw how many nursing homes without power. It stands to reason that many died as a result of this. Um, And we know anecdotally that thousands died, if not from the literal force winds of the hurricane, the man-made disaster of months without power and the stress and, and, and people without water and people without food, um, you know, 16 may have died from the literal landfall of the island, but many, many more died as a result of the conditions in the wake of that. And the fact that this administration was completely caught flat footed and, uh, and, and not there before the, the, the hurricane hit and not, and just not ready. They just weren't ready. Um, and, you know, awareness plays a role in this, too. i I, I remember when the hurricane hit because we also have. You know, my wife's a scientist. We have a control group for this. We have the Texas hurricane. We have the Florida like, hurricane. Like around the same we, time. And we saw Trump, whatever you need, whatever you need, was there two days after uh, uh, in the case of Texas, four days after in the case of Florida. The weekend after Hurricane Maria made landfall in Puerto Rico, it was all NFL tweets. He had picked that issue. And and so as a result, the leader of our country wasn't talking about this Big chunk of the country, this this island without power. Um, so, you know, words make a difference uh, as well. So, um, yes, I did deduct points. <laughs> yeah. um, um, it would be more astonishing if the president could sort of show an ounce of humility and, and deduct his own.
1: Yeah, in general. Yeah. Um, so since we know the president's not going to do or at least doesn't appear to be doing what he needs to do with regard to Puerto Rico, what are the best ways for us to support our fellow Americans in Puerto Rico?
2: Yeah. Um, You can continue to give. There's no shortage of organizations that are, are, are doing great work. I, I work with the Hispanic Federation and you can, and you can do that. There's also chef Jose Andres, who was one of the first people on the ground and is continuing uh, to feed people where there are still places with no power. Um, and, and we got to see his incredible assembly line of cooks in action. Um, and, uh, and, and he's doing, uh, incredible work. Um, There's really – and then the other thing is to continue to keep Puerto Rico in the conversation. Um, You know, outrage makes a difference. Outrage is a fuel source like love and hope Hmm. and anything else. You know, that insane whitefish contract um, that, you know, we – You know, we saw the government sign this multimillion dollar contract to this company with two people uh, that, you know, had never had experience uh, in this field. And and we all screamed, what is happening? And that was over pretty soon because we screamed about it. Um, And, you know. Great reporters like David Begnog going to to those sites and sort of exposing um, all of the faults in the, in the recovery effort. So I think I you know continuing to sort of tell our lawmakers Puerto Rico matters to us, and um, you know they they still need a great degree of uh, aid and stimulus in making that matter to our lawmakers. So keeping us in the in the conversation and 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 giving where you can. And also, I'll I'll also say this, Puerto Rico is now in a position where it can host folks again, like hotels are starting to get back up and running. So if you want to go have an amazing, like it's still Puerto Rico. (laughs) It's still like Mm -hmm. the most, some of the most beautiful beaches you'll ever see and bioluminescent bays and and this incredible, like incredible – place to go, but you can also volunteer there. You can you can tie a vacation in with a volunteering effort, and I've seen more and more people doing stuff like that, and that's, that's incredible.
1: That's a great idea. Just do a service vacation in Puerto Rico. Yeah. Um, so, uh, thank you for doing this. Uh, last question I have. You know, you have more experience, really, as a, an effective treasury secretary than the current treasury secretary, uh, which is my way of asking whether you think you would ever run for office.
2: I'll run for political office the moment you start writing a musical. <laughs> oh, my God.
1: Lin-Manuel Miranda was awesome. Thank you to him for doing this. And also, thank you to my wife, Diana, because by popular demand, she is now going to be part of the outro because everybody says, we don't want to just have her in the ads. We want more Diana. So welcome.
0: Yes. More ads in the outro.
1: No, that's not no, what it that's <laughs> No? That's not what we're doing? No, it's just more you in the outro.
0: Oh. How about that Lin-Manuel Miranda? <laughs>
1: He was awesome. All right, now I'm going to do the thing. Thank you for tuning in for the season premiere of Majority 54. This was only the start of what we have to bring your way this season. Please make sure that you're subscribed and please leave a comment about the show. I personally read every single one, and many of your notes have helped us make the show much better. And again, thanks to Lynn for inspiring all of us and for taking the time to talk about how he's grabbing an oar. 2.3
0: 2.3 million of you already follow Mr. Miranda on Twitter at Lynn underscore Manuel, but if you don't, you should absolutely correct that now. Now, slightly fewer of you follow Jason at Jason Cander. I wouldn't feel bad about that. I, I mean, I'm okay, <laughs> but feel free to follow along to see all the incredible work that he's doing along with the team at Let America Vote, both on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. They share something different on every single platform and you're not going to want to miss it and i don't know if you noticed but we've been video documenting everything that jason is up to and you can catch the behind the scenes video of both this interview and other let america vote projects on his channel on youtube call it a vlog call it candid candor but check it out
1: are we calling it candid candor
0: i don't know like we're just trying stuff out throwing it against the wall seeing how how you guys like it so let us know
1: all right cool uh, and most importantly, please support the Prizio campaign that benefits Pack, Center for Popular Democracy, Latino Victory Fund, and of course, Let America Vote. You can find that at com. It's the big, gigantic photo of Lane manuel right on the main page. Uh, you really, really can't miss it. It's com slash Hamilton.
0: Please don't only donate to the campaign, but share a screenshot of your donation on social media and tell the world how you plan to hashtag grab an oar in 2018 sharing it could double the value of your donation because somebody's going to see it and follow your lead. And if there's something that you want us to know, but you don't want to tell the whole world about it, then you can always email us at hellomajority54, the number 54, at gmail.com.
1: I'm Jason Kander, along with my wife, Diana, our producer, Brock Wilbur, who has one of the coolest names in podcasting, and the fantastic team at Majority54. We're saying thanks for listening. And remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Lucas